I've been trying to clean and organize my garage now for the last five months. It doesn't take me that long because I have a ton of things. It doesn't take me that long because the garage is super messy. It takes me that long because I have a sense that there's a particular order things should go in. Am I going to need the stuff for fixing cars more often or the stuff for working outdoors in the lawn more often? Should the WD-40 go in with the oil or should it go in with the wood glue? It's questions like that that keep me up at night and make me take five months to organize my garage, something that should take not that long, right? It's difficult to put something into order when you have a sense that there's an order that things should go in, but you don't have a map or a guideline for how should it go. I would gladly be pointed to a blog post that says how my garage should be put in order. I am just follow it to the T. Unfortunately, there's conflicting blog posts, and I'm not going to find one order. Thankfully, the case is different in the church. There is a sense that there's an order for things to be put in. But it's not something we're left wondering. What should we structure the church to be like in order for God's people to be faithful and to flourish? What order should things be put in so that the gospel of grace sinks down deep into us? And produces godliness in us. We're not left to wonder because God has given us his word. Paul sent Titus on a mission to the island of Crete to put what remained into order, right? And he didn't say, Titus, just kind of use your best judgment and see what things pan out. No, he said, Titus, here's what you need to do to put the church in order. And he's saying that to us too. We're given this letter as a guideline from Paul, but ultimately from God, right? To know how we ought to organize and structure the church, how to put the church in order so that we see grace at work in the church. That's what we're looking at today. We're going to read Paul's instructions to Titus, and we're going to study those and learn how God has ordered his church in such a way that promotes the faith and flourishing of his people. So let's do that now. Let's read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, our text for today. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word of the Lord. Amen. We see here in verse five, we learn, first of all, that God's church has an order. God has a particular order in mind for his church. That's what's implied when Paul says to Titus, 
put what remained into order. We know that from other places in Scripture, too. We know from 1 Timothy 3 that the church is God's household. And God has an order for his household. Paul wrote the letter of 1 Timothy so that we would know how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. We know that the church has an order from God because the church is God's temple, right? We read that in the call to worship this morning. We're being built into a temple by God. And the Old Testament is full of evidence that God cares a great deal about what happens in his temple and what his temple is like. We know that God has an order for his church because God has a plan for his people. Right? Romans 8, we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's God's plan for us. And to accomplish that plan, God has an order. God has a plan to accomplish his goal. We also know that God has an order for his church because Christ has a goal in mind for his bride. We see that in Ephesians 5, right? Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he could wash her with the body of the with, with the water of the word so that she would be without spot without blemish pure sanctified as a bride Jesus is accomplishing that for his bride in his church and that's why we know that God has a particular order in mind for his church order in the church matters We see that also in the fact that when the church is out of order, God's people end up out of order. This is already happening at Crete when Titus says in chapter 1 verse 11, these false teachers, these insubordinate people, empty talkers and deceivers, verse 11, they must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. God's church is missing some of his ordained order and as a result false teachers are rising up and distorting the gospel upsetting the faith of god's people when god's people are out of order they don't increase in christ likeness right because god has established a pattern for us to be able to increase in christ likeness and it's not just doing whatever it's following his word When God's people are out of order, we also can't fulfill the Great Commission. Because God has ordained through his Son that we would fulfill his Great Commission. To make disciples, to make Christ known in a certain way. And so it is necessary for a church to be healthy. That we are ordered according to God's order. That we are ordered how God would have us. And God's order, we see here in this text prioritizes elders god's order prioritizes elders he cares so much about elders in the church that he addresses it through his word four times substantially in the new testament right we have significant instruction from paul to the elders in ephesus in acts 20 and then we also have paul writing to timothy so that he ought he would know what kind of a man should be an elder in god's church in first timothy 3 And we have him here doing the same thing to Titus. It's that important that he repeats himself. And then we have Peter talking to the elect exiles who are far away from all of this. Saying, here's what a shepherd, an elder in God's church ought to do and be. God cares a great deal about who leads his church. We also see this 
in Paul's church planting strategy in Acts 14. Listen to what he does as he's planting these churches, seeing these churches that are preaching the gospel, that are on mission for Christ, being built up. Here's what he does. Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see here Paul's strategy for planting new churches. Preach the gospel. Make converts, first of all. And secondly, go and disciple those converts. Strengthen them in the knowledge of the Lord. And thirdly, appoint elders in every church. It's that important that it's part of Paul's threefold strategy for planting churches. Healthy churches, according to God's will, require elders. Right? That's what Paul is getting at here in Titus. But it's not just any elder. Paul doesn't stop at verse 5 and say, Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He's not just looking for warm bodies. He's not just looking for any guy willing to lead. Any guy willing to step up and serve. He's looking for specific type of people. Healthy churches require not just elders, but good elders. That's what we see in this text. We see, first of all, the kind of elders that are required are blameless elders. Healthy churches require good elders, and good elders are blameless. Look at verses 6 to 8. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You might have noticed in there as we were reading it, in verses 6 and 7, above reproach is mentioned twice. It's mentioned twice because above reproach kind of summarizes everything else. And another way of putting that, as some translations do, is blameless. Okay, an elder must be blameless. A good elder is blameless. Calvin puts it this way. A good elder is marred by no disgrace. Marred by no disgrace. So we're not talking about sinless here, right? We're not talking about the need to look around and find someone who is without sin and then make them an elder in the church. We're looking for elders that are marred by no disgrace, that have no skeletons in their closet, that if they came out would bring reproach on the gospel. Elders are called to be blameless in two places in Paul's description. They're called to be blameless at home. That's what he's getting at in verses 6 and 7, right? He says in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Good elders are blameless at home. As the husband of one wife or literally a one woman man, good elders are faithful to love and lead their wives. To care for them as Christ cared for the church. Not only that, but good elders 
are faithful to love and lead their children. Now it says in verse 6, his children are believers. If you have a copy of the ESV or a copy of another translation that has a footnote, it might say this like it does in my footnote, number 5, or are faithful. I think faithful is a better translation there than believers for one particular reason. It's that to imply that an elder must have children that are believers implies that the elder's children must be regenerate, right? Know Christ. Okay, and I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here because he says if they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, it has to do with conduct. The emphasis is on how do those children behave, not what do those children profess. Also in verse 9, Paul says, then an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And that word trustworthy there is the same word in verse 6 that's translated believers in the ESV. It's talking about the faithfulness of the word. And it's talking about the faithfulness of the elder's children. A father cannot save his own children. But he can raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? That's what it's calling for here. Paul is saying an elder must be blameless at home in his conduct towards his wife and blameless at home in his conduct towards his children. And one of the evidences of that blamelessness is how his children respond to his authority. In calling for elders to be the husband of one wife or to have children who are believers, Paul is also not disqualifying automatically single men from being elders in the church. He's not saying you've got to find only married guys with at least two kids, right? Implied by children, plural. He's not saying that. He's saying the conduct of a person in their home matters. And if they are single, then their home and their family is often the church extended, right? And you can look at their conduct. How does a single man treat other women in the church? Is it like Paul admonishes Timothy to treat Younger women as sisters in all purity? How does a single man treat others' children in the church? Does he feel a sense of responsibility as the community, the family of God, to help in pointing them to Christ, to care well for them, to protect them? How does he respond to those things? We can get a glimpse of that even in single guys. Single or married, elders are required to be blameless in the home. Why is that? Verse 7 tells us, Paul says, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Elders are required to be blameless in the home because they are stewards in the church, which is God's household, right? How they act in the home reflects how they will care for God's people. If an elder is not able to faithfully love and lead his own wife, How will he love and lead Christ's bride? If an elder is not able to faithfully love and lead his children, earning their trust and respect, how will he do that for God's children? How will they learn to trust and respect his authority if his own children can't even learn that? That's what Paul's getting at. If you cannot steward your own family, you cannot steward God's family. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what we're to look for in an elder. Not only that, though, not only stewarding your own family, but being blameless in public. We see that in verses 7 to 8. 
Paul writes, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Right? Paul is giving these contrasting lists. Not this, but this. And all through this list, there's an emphasis on mastery of self, on self-control, on stewarding one's own self. An elder must be able to steward himself. He must not be mastered by the flesh, but he must be mastered by the spirit, right? These traits, what you're looking for in an elder, they're flowing out of the fruit of the spirit, aren't they? That's what we're calling for. That's what Paul is calling for. You cannot steward God's church if you cannot steward your family. And you cannot steward God's church if you cannot steward yourself. Elders must be blameless at home and in public. Why require this blamelessness from elders? It seems like a bar set pretty high. A task too difficult. Who is sufficient for these things? Why require this? Why don't you see any prosperity gospel preachers that are sick or poor? Because no one would believe them, right? It's the same reason that you need blameless elders in the church. If I, as an elder, am saying, here's what the gospel does, and you don't see it in my life, why would you believe me? Right? That's why we need blameless elders. We need blameless elders to show the power of the gospel. To prove that grace works. What we talked about last week in Titus, right? Blameless elders prove that grace works. Here's, here's why. Here's how that works. Why would an elder be like this? Why would an elder be blameless in these ways? It's not... Because that elder is somehow super spiritual and better than you. Right? That's not why. Why is an elder display godliness? It's because the gospel works. It's because the grace of God is at work in their life to produce godliness. Elders are blameless in the church to show you that grace works and to give you gospel hope. So that when you're drowning in slavery to sin... And an elder teaches you the truth of the gospel that says Jesus saves sinners like you and me. You can look at their life and say, I believe you. Because you know what? That elder, me, Charlie, any other elder you might encounter are sinners saved by grace. We were dead. We were without hope. We were alienated. We were without God. And God, in his mercy, bent down to rescue us. And his gospel has changed us so that instead of being arrogant, we are humbled because we are sinners saved by grace. There's nothing to be arrogant about, right? Instead of, instead of being violent, we are gentle because God was not violent in his wrath towards us as sinners, but has shown us gentle mercy, right? That's what an elder is called to be and do is to be a living example of the gospel hope that's available to all of us. Of the grace that works. 
as we saw all through Titus. Good elders show the power of the gospel with their lives. And where does that come from? How does that, how do you make a good elder? It comes from their profession of the hope that's given us in the trustworthy word, right? That's what Paul gets at in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We see in verse 9 that good elders are Bible guys. Good elders are not only blameless, but they are Bible guys. They hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. But you know what? It's not primarily so that they can teach others. If I'm primarily holding firm to this word so that I have something to say to you on Sunday, kick me out. That's not good. That's not helpful for you and for me because the primary reason elders need to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught is because we need the gospel just as much as any of you. The primary reason we hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught is because what God's word teaches us is that we are terrible sinners. But we have a terrific savior. And holding firm to his word. By doing that, we behold Christ. We behold the forgiveness that comes to us in the gospel. We hold firm first, not because we want to teach others, but because we have a need. Holding firm to this trustworthy word, this sound doctrine, then for elders is the foundation of everything else. It's not the cherry on top. It's not find a guy with good character and then hope he can teach. It's starting with this foundation. Do you hold firm to the gospel? But elders don't want to stay just holding firm to the gospel for their own sake. They want to help others. They want to help you and help me hold firm to that same gospel. This is why Paul says they must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Good elders are able to give instruction in sound doctrine. This does not require a PhD. It does not require knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Those things are good, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about, can you find guys whose lives have been so transformed by the gospel that they are blameless at home and in public? And are those guys able to teach you how to hold to the gospel like that? Are they able to help you hold on to the trustworthy word as taught? Are they able to help you learn how to behold Christ in his word and be transformed? If they are then they are able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's what it's talking about. That's what Paul is calling for. Elders who can actually show you how to use this book to behold Christ, to be changed into his image. It's a work of the Spirit, yes, but God does it through his word. That's what he's calling for with elders able to give instruction. The elders are not only to give instruction, though. Paul finishes out verse 9, his sentence, when he says, also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders need to be able to give sound instruction, to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. We'll learn more about that 
next week because Paul goes in and talks about these people who are teaching this false doctrine and why it's so urgent that elders not able, are not only able to help you follow Christ, but to protect you from those who would turn you away from following Christ. Calvin says the elders need two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. That's a dual role of your elders is caring for you and helping you follow Christ and in protecting you from those who would turn you away. That requires then that not only do elders hold to firm to the trustworthy word is taught, but that that holding firm to Jesus produces in these men a bravery that's going to hold the line against those who would try to destroy your faith. A bravery that holds firm to the Savior, even in the face of hardship and difficulty. This is what good elders are like. This is what the church needs to be put in order. Paul's going to call Titus to do two things to put the church in order at Crete. They're the two things that are the second part of his church planting plan. Put the church in order by appointing elders here. And then we're going to see in chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Put the church in order by appointing elders and discipling those people within the church to live lives where grace works. In order to be in good order, in order to be healthy then, what we must do as a church is appoint good elders, right? We must find guys who are blameless because they've been transformed by the gospel and find guys that are clinging to Jesus and can teach you to do the same. Find guys whose lives are devoted to being lived for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. You find those guys and you put them in leadership in the church. That's what Paul's saying. That's our responsibility. All of our responsibility is to look around us and recognize God's grace at work in the lives of men in our church and to say, hey, brother, You ever think about leading God's church? You ever think about teaching others to follow Christ too? That's what we're calling for. We have a very practical way to put this into effect as Brother Thad is in the eldership candidacy process right now, right? We have an opportunity to assess his life. Charlie and I are putting him forward because we say, here's a guy who's blameless in his life by the grace of God. Here's a guy who clings to the gospel. And will teach you to cling to the gospel too. Here's a guy who wants to serve for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Your job as a church is to say, are Charlie and I blind or do we see rightly? Right? Your job is to assess that, to look for that, and to rejoice with us and with Thad and Sarah and with God as you see that in Thad's life. Our job is to do that right now in this process. So you should take this elder candidacy of Thad's very seriously. And you should hold him to a high standard. But friends, it's a gospel standard, isn't it? It's a gospel standard that says, what I'm looking for is not sinless perfection, but what I'm looking for is, are you blameless in how the grace of God is at operation in your life? That's what we're looking for. What that means then, the other thing that implies for us, The other response that we should have to what we see in God's word this morning is a deep sense of gratitude. Whatever godliness you see in me, 
whatever godliness you see in Charlie is not because of us. Right? Whatever godliness you see in me and in Charlie is because the grace of God is at work in our lives. And that means who gets the glory? It's not us. It's God. Right? You give thanks for the grace of God that you see in good elders. Because good elders are a gift from God to you. So that you have a tangible example that grace works. One more piece of evidence That you can look to and say, I know Jesus is worth following because I know this is what he does in people's lives. That's what you should, that's the response you should have when you look at my life and when you look at Charlie's. That's the response we pray you have. We are thankful to God for whatever grace is in us. And you know what, friends? That's true for all of us, isn't it? Whatever goodness you have in you is not because you are super spiritual. It's not because you are that much more holy than the other person sitting next to you. It's because the grace of God is at work in your life. That's the anthem that we constantly want to proclaim, right? God's grace is at work in our life. His grace works, and you can see it by the evidence of godliness in our lives. That's what we're called to do. That's what God glorifies God. It's really simple to glorify God. Just let his grace work in you. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that your grace works. That the kindness that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, kindness that's undeserved, kindness shown to sinners, that that kindness reconciles us to you, makes us more like your son, secures our hope of eternal life. Thank you, God, for the grace that I have seen on display in the lives of people in Sojourner's Church. And thank you, God, for whatever measure of your grace is on display in my life and in Charlie's life and in Thad's life. We're grateful for these good gifts. We're grateful that you allow us an opportunity to see them and to praise you for it as the giver of all good things. So would you help us cultivate in us hearts of gratitude for your grace?